Hi there. Welcome to the Health Analytic Insights Podcast. This podcast is all about creating a community of like-minded individuals who are passionate about the field of health informatics. I hope to share information and advice in topics such as health analytics, digital health, biomedical engineering, and data visualization in healthcare. And in exchange, I would love to hear from you, dear listener, about your experience and interest in this field. You can drop me a line at healthanalyticinsights at gmail.com. And this email, along with any references discussed during this podcast, will be listed in the show notes below. If this resonates with you, don't forget to follow and subscribe to this podcast, as I'll be releasing new episodes bi-weekly. Welcome, everyone. On this episode of the Health Analytic Insights podcast, I'm so excited to be interviewing my friend, Mohamed Abdelaziz, who we both met at a Carleton University in the biomedical engineering program. I was doing my master's and he was doing his PhD. So I'm really excited this episode to get his viewpoint on going through you know, biomedical engineering, his insights and his career afterwards. So thank you so much, Mo, for being on the episode of the Health Analytic Insights podcast. And my first question for you is, can you give a quick description of your research that you did during your PhD? Absolutely. But first, thank you very much for the invitation. I, I truly appreciate it. And uh, having me as part of this podcast, that's, that's really great. Thank you. In terms of my research, so I'm currently working on detection of cardiovascular diseases using ECG or electrocardiogram. Now, electrocardiogram is the electrical signals that are generated by the heart whenever it beats. Uh, and my research is essentially, can we automatically analyze uh, the signals, ECG, in order to be able to determine whether someone is going through a cardiac event? Uh, however, there's an added additional twist to it where I'm trying to detect these uh, diseases in a signal that has been compressed. So the way to think about it is essentially something similar to how images and videos are being currently being compressed in order to be transmitted over the internet. Mm -hmm. um, so we can think about that, how ECG right now is quite prevalent. Uh, it's used for uh, exercising, it's used for medical reasons. So there are a lot of ECG that's being collected out there. So mm -hmm. how can we, while we're collecting the ECG, compress it, and then without decompressing it in order to save time and to save energy, uh, detect any cardiovascular events in the compressed ECG. Very, very interesting. And you know, with this work, what are some of the barriers that it comes to when it comes to actually implementing your research in a real life situation like a hospital or a clinical organization? Can you kind of speak to that? Absolutely. Um, so, so far, all of my work has been theoretical. <laughs> uh, and some of the barriers is even though uh, there are a lot of data that is available uh, online, this data uh, is not quite expansive. So usually there are uh, the data that I'm using as an example are around 100 patients. And so in order to implement a, a protocol or to, or to uh, introduce a new device into a medical setting, it has to be thoroughly tested in, under multiple conditions. So one of the barriers mm -hmm. is the availability of uh, large data sets. And even though I have data that's available, I wouldn't, I wouldn't classify it as quite large. The second thing is that the other barriers, the, even the data that I have are, tip, even though they're collected from patients, they have been uh, cleaned out. Mm -hmm. um, and actually part of my research that I'm, I'm currently looking at is the impact of data that, that is not quite clean mm -hmm. uh, on the 
uh, on the operation of, of the, the algorithm that I, I've developed. Um, so that's another thing is the availability uh, or testing the algorithm in real life settings where people are moving around, you get all the noise and interference from other devices um, mm -hmm. and other tests that being run at the same time as ECGs being collected. Um, so that, that is still lacking. And uh, hopefully at one point in the future, I'll be able to go into a hospital and I was like, hey, let's test this out. So I would say the, these are the two main barriers that I have to currently to implementing into a hospital. Of course, the, there is the, the, the regulation side, uh, mm -hmm. as always, it's the healthcare field, it's quite regulated, which should be, uh, mm -hmm. in order to make sure that anything that's uh, that's implemented and anything that's being introduced into a hospital is actually safe. So as going through the process of, um, well, jumping through the hoops, essentially making sure that, uh, first of all, the algorithm is safe, that it's okay to, uh, to, uh, to introduce it in a hospital, that it's okay that it preserves progress, privacy. So there are all these regulatory aspects that uh, requires that, that I should first go through before I could introduce or test out this algorithm in a hospital. That's super interesting because that's like the same thing for me in terms of my master's research. Those were the, some of the barriers, you know, the privacy and security aspect of it and just like the data set itself, right? Because yeah. it was definitely uh, cleaned and manipulated because um, I was taking data from a hospital and they had to have their own privacy and regulations on what data they could, you know, give to Carlton, right? So those are some of the barriers that you come to when you're working with academic uh, research in the healthcare field. And that totally makes sense because um, definitely have to have these, these privacy considerations. Um, I was recently reading this article um, from Stat Health, which actually had these, um, some of these machine learning um, healthcare algorithms implemented within their diagnosis process. Mm -hmm. And they didn't really reveal that to patient that the machine learning algorithm was actually used as part of their um, diagnosis. And oh. it was interesting because I could see both sides. One of the mm -hmm. clinicians said that, oh, they don't reveal that a machine learning algorithm is used as part of the diagnosis because they consider it just like a tool, like just yeah. like you use like a stethoscope, um, it's just part of the analysis, but the doctor is really the person at the forefront who's making this decision. Mm -hmm. But I think that, you know, we've been cognizant that a few of these machine learning algorithms, because the data that's input into it is biased, it can have um, negative impacts for minorities and marginalized group of people, right? So we kind of want to balance that, I guess, transparency, uh, yeah. because maybe perhaps I would want to know if that information is actually being part of my standard of care, right? So mm -hmm. I think that's it's really an, inter an interesting um, consideration when it comes to actually integrating these um, healthcare algorithms that we've built in academic research actually into the real world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's privacy and it's also making sure that the patient recognizes that uh, yes, part of the part of the process of your diagno your diagnosis has been the usage of machine learning. And as with any uh, and as you mentioned, machine learning could be quite biased depending on the data and mm -hmm. As I mentioned, even though like I have only 100 patients, I actually do not know the demographic of my patients because it's an online data set that has been uh, de-identified uh, to make sure that it, we cannot <laughs> we cannot backtrack who mm -hmm. uh, who is that patient specifically. I, I only have age and sex, but as an example, I don't have ethnicity. Okay. So uh, 
I, I'm, I'm not sure if there is bias in my data to begin with. I don't know if uh, ethnicity has an impact on, as an example, ECG, which is something very specific to my research. However, generally speaking, ethnicity uh, could have an impact on the medical data and subsequently uh, cause a bias in the data set. And I think that's actually one of the challenges I would say in introducing machine learning algorithms, especially in, in healthcare field is making sure that the data is not biased. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And um, I actually remember, I don't know if you, you must have taken this class. It was like intro to biomedical engineering. Yeah. And um, I remember like the prof gave an example of this data set that was basically, the study was basically on women who had experienced like domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And it was actually a case where the data was not properly anonymized. And it was possible for people to actually identify these women through like, you know, geographical, like a combination of geographical information and yeah. other factors. And so things like this could be definitely life and death when it comes to making sure that we have our privacy, that it's secure and, and whatnot. And um, I guess the last question I would just ask you in terms of this is, what do you, how do you feel about some of these big tech companies like, you know, Amazon, um, Google, they, they bought Fitbit and all, and all this yeah. um things really coming into the healthcare space and being disruptors. Like, do you worry about data <laughs> privacy in terms of that? Do you think they will have, they have all the regulations already in place? Do you think they'll cut corners? <laughs> it's, I think, see, it's good and bad. And, and I know everyone would default there. No, it's a bad thing, but they are the forefronts in this technology. They, they have the latest uh, machine learning and AI tools that, uh, that could help build uh, amazing algorithms that could help uh, build uh, decision uh, support systems. Mm -hmm. uh, they also have the, the capability of collecting are amazing a large number of data that uh, mm -hmm. no single researcher is able to do that or no mm -hmm. I don't think even a hospital like a single hospital will be able to do that the bad side is uh, uh, the the negative side is yes it's a lot of private information it's also it's not just private so actually uh, in my master's one of the things that I looked at was the ability to use ECG as a biometric so mm -hmm. as a replacement to a fingerprint Okay. So mm -hmm. you can imagine a company such as whether it's Google or Amazon, they most likely have a picture of us mm -hmm. <laughs> somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> so they, they would have our likeness, they would have our interests, and now they have biological signals that could be used to identify us or in the future could be used as a biometric. So trying having all of these information in one place becomes, it, it will make it quite difficult for an individual, as an example, to step away from that ecosystem. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and that's already happening. And I guess that's why in the US, they're trying to break up these big companies is essentially now, if I want to step away from Google, as an example, or actually Amazon would be a, a better uh, <laughs> example, because Amazon now hosts, uh, I don't know, like third of, or the third of the world traffic goes through Amazon. Don't I'm, I'm not sure. So if anyone is listening, <laughs> don't quote me on it. But the their, their Amazon Web Services is... Uh, is quite humongous. They mm -hmm. they service more or less the entire world, and a lot of the data is followed through their services. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to step away from, let's say, oh, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I don't wanna, as an example, use Amazon services. Well, that's actually might not be possible. Like mm -hmm. trying to escape <laughs> Amazon yeah. might not be possible because if it's not through their direct services such as well Amazon Prime, login into websites as an example Netflix, it it uses Amazon, Amazon Web Services. Yeah, that's so true. 
so I would say it's 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 a blessing that they they could have this amount of data because they could use it for an amazing good having being able to connect the patient's records from going from all the way to biological signals and doing analysis to their to their imaging. So any any biological Im uh, or or uh, biomedical imaging that has been taken, such as MRIs or CT scans, combining these together with the doctor's notes, but also combining that with the patient's habits and their uh, online activities, which I'm, I'm, I'm starting to realize that sounds creepier and creepier as I'm saying it. But you could think about it. They, they, could, they could find trends that could tell us, as an example, especially in the mental health space, if mm -hmm. someone, their, their trends are shifting or their act online activity is shifting or the way they are or the things that they're buying. That might be indicative of someone who might be experiencing depression or someone who might be going into a crisis and they might put tools into place to to reach out to these individuals so the the good that could come out of it is is um, is a lot and is quite immeasurable but also the bad that could come out of it because you could imagine having all this data about a single individual in one place would make it hard to leave that ecosystem but you could think about it you could think about it from a different perspective which is it may not apply here in Canada, or it will apply to a certain extent, but in the U.S., as an example, the healthcare system is based on insurance, by individuals mm -hmm. going out and buying health insurance. Mm -hmm. So you could imagine an insurance company going, well, okay, so let me go and find everything about that individual in terms of their health, in terms of their daily activities, and they could adjust the insurance premiums yeah. based mm -hmm. based on what they think that individual activity is going to look like, or, or they could uncover some trends in the data that uh, that could point out to an individual being a higher risk, even though that individual right now does not have any uh, underlying conditions. So you could imagine how that could impact people's lives and their yeah. access to healthcare. Absolutely, absolutely. That is some, a really great insight. Thank you for that. So let's take it all the way back to what got you interested in the field of biomedical engineering and why'd you even decide to study biomedical engineering? <laughs> It's cool. <laughs> so it was, so biomedical engineering, it, it was, um, it wasn't a, I would say it's a semi-straight choice that I ended up doing. It wasn't very straightforward. So I, I generally had an interest in the, in biology and had an interest in how the human body works. So mm -hmm. when I was, so when I was deciding on what sort of um, <laughs> undergraduate degree I could do, I was like, okay, so I could do, I could go into medicine, I could go into pharmacy, could go into biology, uh, just pure sciences. But then I, I stumbled upon biomedical engineering, like literally I was just Googling. And I was like, biomedical engineering, never heard of that before. Let me take a look at it. <laughs> and realized it was, it was interesting because it puts two fields together. It, you're, as biomedical engineers, we're kind of sitting in the middle. And we get a chance to learn about the biology, the anatomy, how the human body works. And of course, not to the depth as a clinician does. However, it, it also allows us to take that knowledge and apply it and build things that could help people. And that was the thing that we, that was the aspect of biomedical engineering that uh, kind of, um, or I was really attracted to. I was like, oh, so I could take my knowledge, build new devices and, and help people. And that is kind of how I ended up going into biomedical engineering. But I was at the very end, it was like a bit of touch and go because I, I had, I also applied to pharmacy and oh, at one point yeah, I was playing, cool. yeah. And at one point I was planning going to medicine. So it's it, it, like, 
um, um, my 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 goal was to be in the healthcare field, I guess so mm -hmm. that, that I could say. And biomedical provided me with that opportunity, but also gave me the option of well studying engineering and applying these techniques to healthcare, which is quite interesting, I would say. Very cool. And you know, you've you've gone through this whole process of doing your did you do your undergrad in biomedical engineering as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Undergrad, master's so, and PhD. And master's and PhD. So yeah. what advice would you give, you know, to biomedical students who are or even, you know, students in high school that might be thinking about going through this path, I'm sure you might have a completely different perspective from when you first started undergrad to now, you know, being at the end oh. of your PhD. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, okay. So biomedical engineering is, is quite an interesting field, but it's also quite a vast field. So a very straightforward difference is that there is biomedical electrical and there's biomedical mechanical. And these two fields um, address different aspects of the human body. But uh, very similar to uh, how clinicians could specialize, like you could get someone who is an ear, ear, nose, and throat specialist, and you, and uh, a, a cardiologist. So they could specialize. Um, biomedical engineering, you can end up with, uh, with these kind of spe uh, specializations. But in order to work in the biomedical field, usually these specializations are uh, required. Uh, so what I'm trying to get to is that postgraduate <laughs> education is typically required in the biomedical field. After my undergrad, uh, coming out of the undergrad, I looked back, I was like, wait, I need to learn more. <laughs> what do you think? So I was like, what just happened? What these, four years, yeah, these four years uh, really flew by. So I was like, mm -hmm. I want to learn more. And additionally, when I started applying to biomedical jobs, I recognized that most of them require a master's or a PhD. So, so that's how I ended up going into my master's. And it was honestly a no-brainer. A master's is only a couple of years. It gives you that um, extra specialization. Uh, you get to learn a lot. You get to experience academia, which is, I would say everyone needs to, unless they're 100% sure, it's like, I want to go into industry and I just want to do, uh, or I just want to build things. I don't want to go into research, which research is building things, but it's in a different way than actually building <laughs> products. Uh, then they got to try academia at one point and doing a master's just a couple of years and pretty straightforward. So I did my master's after my master's. Um, the reason I went into a PhD is at one point I was, oh, you know what? Uh, being a professor is not bad. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and I was interested in teaching. Uh, I was, do, I was, I was a teaching assistant during my, during my master's. And I found that to be quite interesting to get to interact with students to get they, they teach me a lot and the best way to know if uh, the best way to know if you actually learn something is to try to teach it yeah, absolutely. which yeah which made me realize i did not learn that much i need to learn more <laughs> um so so i ended up going into my phd because yeah, because uh, I was like, oh, I'm, I was gonna become a prof. As I became closer and closer, like as I went by in my PhD, I rec uh, recognized that um, there are a lot of aspects to being a professor and there are a lot of aspects to research that we as master students were not exposed to. So uh, even though I would like to continue teaching, right now I'm actually not hundred percent sure if I wanna go into uh, a professorship, but I'm, uh, one day, maybe. But I guess the advice that I'm, I would, uh, the reason I'm saying my story, I guess, so is the advice to give is if you're going to the biomedical field, then, uh, or biomedical engineering, I should say specifically, you'll most likely need to do postgraduate education, which is really useful and, and helpful. The whether or not to continue 
uh, after a master's, that's going to depend on whether you like academia or you want to go into industry. However, I would say experiencing academia is, is a good plus. Uh, additionally, there is no one, uh, we tend to think of careers as linear, and there's actually mm. one of my supervisor was saying that, and it's absolutely not. I would say try things and and figure out whether you like them or not versus going, I don't think I don't like, I'm, unless you're 100% sure that you don't like something, then yes, absolutely don't try it out. But if you're not sure, try things out, put some effort into it. You don't like it, you could always switch, you could always try something new, especially as you're starting your career. And yeah, careers tend not to be linear. You The best way to find out, just look at LinkedIn and look at how people's exactly. careers are going. Are, yeah, it, the, it's, it tends to be all over the place. Uh, some people start in biomedical and then they switch out. Others start outside of biomedical engineering and then switch into biomedical engineering. Some go into engineering and then management, some uh, consulting and then back into engineering. It's it's quite nonlinear. So I would say my advice is to try things uh, and, and see how it pans out and uh, keep your options open and keeps, keep your views open of what are the different careers that are out there especially in biomedical engineering. Yeah, that's really, really great advice. And I feel like just engineers in general, I find that they tend to have very nonlinear careers. Like I know engineers who are lawyers, I know engineers who are yeah. doctors. Like I feel like the the field in general lends it to a lot of collaboration between different fields. Um, mm-hmm. Just in my own experience, um, I had a very, uh, I totally agree with um, Mo. Like I did my undergrad at University of Guelph and I did it in biomedical engineering and in biomedical engineering at Guelph, there's like three streams. There's like a mechanical stream, signal processing stream, and then like electrical stream. Mm-hmm. Um, so like in my first first year, I kind of knew right away mechanical was not for me. I had no idea what was going on with these stress calculations. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know the feeling, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I tried it like as most as like try something and then um, you'll know if it's not for you. And then yeah, I was kind of between like the electrical and the signal processing. Um, so then I kind of did both like electrical devices and then some mm-hmm. signal processing, but more on the signal processing side. And I thought I was going to do signal processing. Like my plan was to actually study at McGill oh. for my master's. Yeah. Cause like similar to Mo, like I graduated and I was like, okay, what did I even learn? Like, I'm so confused. I applied to jobs, <laughs> but wasn't really hearing anything back. And yeah. you really need that like master's like I found yeah. for jobs. So I thought I was going to go the signal processing route, but then I ended up at Carleton. Um, kind of more into the the data analytics um, and healthcare. And I've been passionate about it ever since, like the health informatics space. So like, you know, you think you, I think as an undergrad, you kind of feel like you have an idea of exactly how your life is going to plan. But like my advice would just be to like, just be open and also really make sure that you have like hobbies and things that you're kind of passionate about on the side, because your hobbies can really also kind of inform what you might want to do in your day-to-day life. I think that that's also very important, not just to be focused on school, you know, 24-7, but also have um, some side hobbies as well. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, One of the things that really helped me was actually volunteering. It gave me a lot of the soft skills that uh, you wouldn't typically get through going through courses at the university, and that helped Mm -hmm. me through interviews, through jobs. Uh, uh, Like, I would highly advise it to have other things other than school, just pure school. Yeah, and Hobbies and volunteering, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the next question I want to ask you is you recently, you know, started a job in industry. Um, mm-hmm. Can you talk about some of the pros and cons of being in industry versus um, being in academia? Uh, absolutely. So 
I guess I, I wouldn't list them as pros and cons. What I'll do is just I'll say the differences that I noticed and people could decide for themselves. <laughs> uh, it just, it's hard to put, to put something as a pro and, uh, and something as a con unless it's, it's very clear. Uh, but the, the, the very big difference between academia and industry is, uh, is how deep how deep you or the, an engineer would go into the implementation of a certain product. Uh, in industry, there is a threshold of saying, well, this is good enough. We need right. to sell this. Versus in, in academia, it's like, wait, 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 wait. Can What if we poke it from that direction? What's going to happen? Mm. <laughs> and these are different mentalities that, that, that are there in academia and in industry. So that, that's the big difference. In terms of other differences, I know is, of course, pace. Industry is typically fast-paced. Uh, we need to get things out. We need to sell products. We need to make more money because, at the end of it, it's it's a especially in a company, it's it's about uh, whether the company is profitable or not and their sales. Right. In academia, it's it's much slower. It's like let's try different things. Let's see why something is not working. Why? Uh, what if we put it under this this condition? What if we try this different algorithm? What if we try this different technique? And it's all it's it's slower paced because it's about trying different things and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So and. In academia, it's also good to know, well, this does not work because then others wouldn't wouldn't go down the same path. We'll be able to tell other researchers, well, we'll try this, this did not work, and this worked. So if you want to build on top of our, our research, here's where you could start. In industry, it's just important to find what works because we need to build a product. This works great. There's no reason to find out what does not work. <laughs> it doesn't help us. <laughs> uh, I also found that uh, and that would really depend on the person's experience. But I personally found that uh, industry could be more collaborative uh, versus academia could be more it's you versus the problem. And that's not entirely the, the entirety of academia. Um, I get to work with my supervisors. I get to work with my colleagues. But the person that's responsible for the thesis, for getting the work done, for finding out the new techniques is myself. Um, I collaborate with my colleagues by uh, asking them questions and whenever I'm stuck, as an example, or I go back to my advisors and supervisors like, oh, you know what, this is this might not be working. What do you think? Or I've tried this, 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 it's not working. Do you, do you have any recommendations? Uh, versus in industry, it could be, okay, we need to uh, finish this algorithm. Okay, we're going to split the work, we're going to meet every day or every couple of days, make sure that we're on track, make sure to help each other. Mm -hmm. uh, the the responsibility uh, falls upon the team and there's a more collaborative environment. Mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't list as a pro, pro and con there. Uh, I have colleagues in academia who like working by themselves most of the time and it's them versus the problem. And, and I have colleagues who are, oh, I love the collaborative environment. I love working with people and I love having meetings and brainstorming and jumping around and <laughs> making, just working on or facing that problem as a team. Yeah, that's a really great uh, distinction. Just so listeners yeah. can kind of understand and see which category they might fall into. So yeah, that's really good. Yeah, absolutely. It it really depends on on their their preferences. So as an example, if uh, if you uh, if you like to mainly work by yourself, uh, face face the problem by yourself, uh, work at a slower pace. It, 
try to get the into in depth uh, into a problem, then academia is probably the way for you. If you're more um, like a like more a collaborative environment and you like to you like to build things and to move to build different things constantly, so different products and change between products constantly, um, and a faster pace than industry is probably more for you. It's uh, th- that's also the other thing is that in industry, it's usually projects are shorter uh, or shorter term than in academia. And uh, right. academia, I mean, there are professors who have been working in the same research area, more or less the same thing for their entirety of their careers. And mm-hmm. that's usually what's required to really get to the bottom of how things work. <laughs> in my PhD, I've been working for a few years now on more or less the same problem. However, in industry, it's usually, well, we need to get a new product out. So we need, we're going to work on this product. We're going to build it. Uh, test it, make sure it works. Okay, we'll ship that now. Let's look at the new product or let's look at a new way to improve that product. So it's a different experiences, different different projects, different products that you get to work on. Um, I would say these are the main distinctions between academia and industry. And I think it really depends on the individual whether to they're going to like one versus the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 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 what I that's that was my experience and someone else might have different experiences but yeah that sounds very similar to you know people who I've interviewed and they've given a a very similar answer that kind of if you like to focus on a problem for a long period of time we want to look at different angles academia might be for you and then the collaborative aspect of working in industry um, is also might be a benefit to you as well so yeah it definitely depends on the person and I think it goes back to like what are you passionate about what if if you have volunteered, like, what have you preferred mm-hmm. to do? Have you preferred to work on a project by yourself that's more self-directed or, you know, have you, have you liked that team aspect of things and you kind of tell you about yourself and what you might enjoy? But yeah, this has been yeah. such a great conversation, Mo. And my last question is, where do you hope to see the field of biomedical engineering in the next uh, five to 10 years? Oh, that's a very good question. I would really love to see more integration of machine learning and AI in the biomedical field. And for that to happen, I would love to see more uh, data or open data that's out there. I mean, we currently do have that. Uh, There are currently data that's out there that's easy to download. So data is getting easier and easier to access data. Mm -hmm. However, there are still leaps and bounds to for for having raw data that's that's uh, easily accessible that is uh, at a large scale. I would also, I mean, I understand there are regulations and it's uh, and these rec- regulations are required. However, it will be really great to see more uh, an ability to be able to introduce or to limit the introduction of a product into a hospital to try it out without mm-hmm. having to go through the entirety steps uh, of of the regulatory process or more hospitals. To be accepting of that uh, of that idea. So yeah, it really main, mainly comes down to the uh, accepting more of, of AI and machine learning in the field. Of course, with no matter how far AI or machine learning goes, at the end of it, it's going to be a doctor that's making the decision. So it's it's more about the integration of more of the machine learning in the field. The more the availability of more of raw data that's that's out there that's available for everyone to use uh, and that's available at a large scale, and also the more for the integration of the new trends and the new products into a hospital at a smaller scale just to test them out, but uh, the uh, to make it easier for to introduce these type of technologies, new technologies and products into a hospital. So yeah, these are the three ways that I would love to see where biomedical engineering goes in the next five to 10 years. Yeah, that's really awesome. I think it's also similar to me. I really want to see, you know, 
growing interoperability. I think mm-hmm. we have so many like, you know, health devices like Fitbits, and I just love to see them integrated within the EHR records, as you're saying, and, Absolutely. and allowing, as you're saying, allowing more creativity. Um, if we allow some, you know, again, with the regulations in place, some mm-hmm. more open access to the EHRs and having people build tools that can actually integrate with them in a safe mm-hmm. way, I think it will really explode the creativity and the ability to develop patient outcomes. And I think mm-hmm. also something that I'm looking forward to hopefully in the future is the ability to, for the patient to have more access to their records, more access yes. to kind of manage yeah. their own conditions. I'm thinking mm-hmm. even with diabetes, um, allowing patients to, you know, already they have to be, you know, making sure that their insulin is at the correct levels and there's already yeah. that mindset. So if they could have the, the data and the ability to manage their own diseases even more, I think that it would be, you know, really helpful in the future as well. Absolutely. And actually, just to add one point to that, uh, and that might not be applied directly to, uh, it might not be research, but it could be just biomedical engineering in general, uh, and or, or the development of a few products, it would be really great to see patients being integrated as part of the process. Mm-hmm. So right now, the development of a new product or algorithm is usually the clinician who pro- providing advice on how the body works and what mm-hmm. what's the problem that we need to face, and then the engineer building the tool. Right. But uh, I haven't experienced it where the patient is into the loop. Uh, now that that might be uh, that might make sense in certain uh, certain aspects, such as well, it's a new product that the that the doctor is going to give to the patient, where the patient is going to use it. It makes sense to integrate to integrate the patient to the process of building the product or or building the new algorithm. Uh, and I just think that it's, it will be quite important to get the opinion and the insight of patients who are actually either using the products or who are experiencing the product as the <laughs> doctor used them. <laughs> yeah. No, that's such a great point. Yeah, I hope to see that in the future as well. And uh, thank you so much for this um, interview, Mo. You've provided so much insight and I've learned so much. And I know listeners will really take value from this. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for the invitation again. I I quite appreciate it. And this has been a lot of fun. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Health Analytic Insights Podcast. I'd love to hear from you about topics I should cover in future episodes. Please consider subscribing and leaving a review. Have a wonderful day.